All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. Best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. I'm very excited to have my dear friend, uh, Aaron Wright, who's the co-founder of Open Law and a professor of, uh, at, of law at Cardozo University. I've known Aaron almost since day one, at least day one since Ethereum. I think, uh, you know, 2013, I got into the industry, but but uh, in terms of conversations with people that actually believe in this crazy thing called Ethereum, you gotta be up there in, in, in the top three or four in terms of conversations. I actually remember it. You sent me an email, I was putting on an event to Cardozo, you sent me an email, like, I wanna be on the panel. We're bringing in Ben Lasky. Uh, oh, wow, there it was, yeah, yeah, and I was not invited because uh, you're smart and you, you recognize that that probably wasn't going to be a good use of university resources. Um, well, if I knew you at the time, you had a... You definitely would have said that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're going to talk about the uh, the legal autonomous organization, um, which is, it, uh, it, it certainly presents an alternative to being compliant with U.S. securities law and, and actually moving the ball forward. Uh, with respect to autonomous entities or, or, or at least a new type of entity using uh, crypto primitives. So why don't we start by just talking a little bit about um, the history, maybe a short history of VDAO, um, Ethereum's first, I guess, killer app that almost killed it, right. um, and why people are, were, have been so excited about these autonomous entities, and then what you're aiming to do um, with the Lao. Sure. Um, and 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 uh, if we want to go even a little bit further back, maybe how you got into this whole uh, industry and mess, and and um, and for me, this is kind of a natural extension of, of everything that you've been working on for four or five years now. So, talk a little bit about um, you know everything that's gotten us to, to the point that we are right now, because. Uh, it's one of the initiatives that uh, I'm very excited about, if a little bit reserved in, in, um, in my excitement 
So uh, at least early on, just because there are so many things that have to come into place uh, for this to actually take off. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll start with just uh, the DAOs and uh, Ethereum yeah. and, and really kind of this concept that folks have been interested in from the beginning. And it's really that, right? Since Ethereum was birthed into existence, there's always been this kind of related concept and it actually predated Ethereum of uh, decentralized autonomous organization or other forms of autonomous corporations or entities that rely on smart contracts to kind of manage uh, the uh, collection of you know, some sort of votes for members and then the allocation of funds to uh, various different parties. Um, and the first great experiment with this was the DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, which you can view of as kind of a, a, a first version of a venture capital fund that is completely in the sky, completely mm -hmm. in the cloud. And the vision was really compelling to many folks, right? It was like, you should not need to go to Silicon Valley if you want to raise funding. You should be able to go to this entity, the DAO, uh, and receive funding, uh, particularly if you wanted to build something in the Ethereum ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It turned out that lots of folks were interested in that idea. Uh, I, my recollection was that the founders of the DAO were hoping to raise $500,000. They wound up uh, raising $150 million, which today would be worth about $2 billion into this entity called the DAO. Uh, and it began to work, but there was a several proposals that went in, folks were beginning to participate in it, and it suffered from a tragic uh, hack, uh, which ultimately required that Ethereum fork and create two versions of itself, but ETH and ETH Classic, um, and also it kind of uh, ended that experiment. But the idea, this idea of a DAO, uh, some sort of uh, venture capital fund that exists in uh, in the sky on Ethereum has really animated developers for quite some time. And so um, my background, just to touch base, I'm a professor at Cardozo Law School. Uh, I also run a project called OpenLaw. Uh, we've been building out kind of a layer that sits on top of Ethereum and other blockchains that enables us to tie uh, legal agreements to any blockchain-based asset transfer. So mm -hmm. you can take a legal agreement, you can sign it, and you can trigger lots of on-chain activity. Uh, so we've been uh, trying to solve this problem, another layer on top of Ethereum, uh, that enables us to hopefully begin to do more complex, more sophisticated transactions on a blockchain and in particular on Ethereum. Uh, and this, you know, is really something that we've been working towards from the beginning. So from the beginning of Ethereum, which I had the pleasure of uh, helping to launch in, in a small way, um, there's always been this idea of not just building a bank, something to manage assets, but also managing commercial transactions more broadly. Smart contracts are fantastic in moving around assets, but uh, as folks that are sophisticated know, uh, you need to manage risk in different ways, and smart contracts are not great at managing risk. They actually create more risk. The way that we manage risk today is usually through contracts. So it's marrying together traditional contracts with this uh, asset management system called uh, a blockchain that lots of folks have thought from the beginning is really the two, two of the pieces that we're going to need to rebuild the commercial world. So that's largely built, um, and we've been uh, rolling that out with lots of different folks, from the LSTA to other major trade organizations to uh, law firms and various different other parties. And we've also been putting together and kind of supporting all these initiatives to start building uh, limited liability uh, autonomous organizations or limited liability decentralized autonomous organizations. So we started working with them over the past couple months, and it occurred to us we should really resurrect this initial concept of the DAO. It was a great one. Everybody was interested in it. There's clear market demand for it. There's clear interest in it. Um, but a lot uh, like what we saw with Mt. Gox, which was the right business model, which was the right idea, it just wasn't done right from a security perspective, from a jurisdictional perspective, 
Um, if we were going to look at the DAO, mm -hmm. uh, we should do it in the U.S. the right way, much like how Coinbase and other exchanges did the same thing to Mapbox uh, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight years ago. Uh, so that's really the concept. The concept of the DAO is that we're going to be building uh, and helping uh, to support a venture capital fund that's running on Ethereum, uh, but it's going to dot I's and cross T's and do so in a way that complies um, with U.S. law. So it's going to be organized in Delaware, it's going to be uh, operating in the U.S., uh, and hopefully it's going to create this opportunity for a project in the Ethereum ecosystem to start and you need funding. You do not need to go to Silicon Valley, you do not need to come here to Silicon Alley, you don't need to leave the, the confines of your house. If you have a following online and people respect what you're doing, you can apply to the lab. Members can uh, decide to uh, propose that you get supported with funding, and then you can receive funding. And if all goes well, you could potentially receive funding in days instead of months or weeks or even years of uh, going and talking to venture capital funds. So that, that's kind of the initial uh, promise of the DAO, right? right. Uh, back when, when it raised all that money. But um, let's talk about some of the building blocks, right? Because sure. Open Law is a project uh, that you've been working on for, for several years now. Right. Um, what are some of the foundational pieces of Open Law? Because um, we, we should parallel path this conversation so that it's uh, DAOs on the one hand, but, but also the legal building blocks that marry wet and dry code, exactly. right? People talk about, um, unstoppable contracts and uh, and code is law and things like that. And, and in the real world, that's not true. Um, if for no other reason than these technologies are so mature. So, so there's a bit of playing catch up with the maturity and the reliability of the tech that's powering these contracts. But then there's also just um, coding these things in a way that is Compliant and, and would actually be upheld in court, right? Yeah. Forget about you know whether something is 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 you know, capable of being rolled back. Some of these real world contracts you want to automate, they're still going to exist and they're still going to be adjudicated in, in the real world. So, what what are what are the um, low hanging pieces, low hanging fruit, and, and, and components that you focused on early on with Open Law, and, and sure. maybe you know starting from that, this this would be like a not even a law 101, but just some uh, organization to the, the mass that is law that could be upgraded via, via smart contracts. Yeah, so sure. Where do you start? And really, it's a, it's a history lesson of cypherpunks, right? So mm -hmm. when Nick Zabo came up with this notion of smart contract in the late 1990s, it was amazing. Right? The mm -hmm. idea was that you could use code to kind of represent the transfer of assets or the contracts more broadly. Around the same time, uh, Ian Grigg, who's done quite a bit of work in the space and, and with digital cash and money uh, beyond that, he came up with a related concept called the Ricardian contract. Uh, and the, the idea was is that if you have a legal agreement today, it should be able to be represented in a computer object so that mm -hmm. it can be understandable by machines, by computers, by other computing systems. Um, and that should be done in a cryptographically secure way. And at the end of even the, one of the papers that Ian put together describing this concept, he noted that this is going to be a complement to smart contracts, like the ones described by Nick mm -hmm. uh, And it's really, I think in many folks' mind, this marriage of these two things, the wet and dry code, uh, that's necessary for us to begin to build robust new commercial systems. Commercial systems that are open, or more decentralized, uh, more available, cheaper, 
Um, and, I, and that's really the core concept of what we've been building in Pokemon. So that is the legal building box that we've been trying to build. Mm -hmm. uh, and to do that, we build tools that enable us to take any agreement or any uh, set of agreements, no matter how complex they are, and we can convert them into a data object, a JSON object, um, and we can also facilitate, once they're signed, orchestration of any number of smart contract calls. That's the theory. What are some of, in practice, what are some of the easiest to automate legal contracts? Yeah, so we'll give you a couple of examples, some simple and more complex. Mm -hmm. So on the simple, uh, on the simple level, uh, we've shown how um, a basic employment agreement. So let's say you were employing me, Ryan, you would uh, enter into an agreement You're with very you. expensive. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you want to explore real-time payment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we want to explore not just paying somebody every two weeks, but we want to use a smart contract to pay somebody every minute or every hour or every day. Um, Which is one of my favorite applications that has not yeah. been built yet. And I still don't well, fully understand why not. So we've already built it. So you can, using OpenLaw, you can take that very basic agreement and employee mm -hmm. offer letter or employment agreement you can replace and reference smart contracts, mm -hmm. uh, and then we can handle the smart contract piece once it's on. So if you wanted to get paid every minute, or if some of your workers wanted to get paid every minute, that's completely possible today. And all those risks that you worry about as a business owner, like IP, whether that's somebody leaves, representations and warranties, those are all covered by the traditional legal agreement. Mm -hmm. And the fun smart contract piece and move around assets really fast, you also get the benefit of it too. Okay, so and is that all open source as well? Yeah, so OpenLaw is an open source protocol. Uh, so the way that we create agreements that are data objects is open. Uh, the way that we orchestrate transactions is completely open as well. Um, and the nice thing that we're able to do is schedule smart contract calls. So we can do this recurring, uh, these recurring type of arrangements. So that's like on the simple end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, we've also worked with the LSTA, so which is the Loan Syndicated Trading Association. So mm -hmm. they handle really, really big loans to build buildings and other large projects. Uh, we work with them to automate it. Uh, very complex revolving credit facility. So if you need to take on a big loan, uh, there's usually an administrative agent that kind of facilitates that. Mm -hmm. So we took their standard agreements, which are very complex, 70 plus page documents, replaced portions of that with smart contract calls, and showed how that's completely feasible in a blockchain world and at a lower cost for the administrator. Uh, so those are kind of the more complex types of transactions that we've already been able uh, to handle. We've also done smart derivatives, smart real estate, really any use case, it really has a strong legal component to it, and we prefer it to be palatable for, for folks in the real world that are managing this kind of more value. And so that's in part why um, you know, we, we had this kind of what we view as a powerful engine to do lots of really fun commercial things, and we started thinking about the DAO space just in general, and we realized that in part there was a number of issues with the DAO itself uh, that were not just technical, right? There's some legal issues that they ran into, uh, and we figured with our tooling that we'd be able to begin to address it. And as we began to dig in more, we kind of had a, a eureka moment at some point where we were like, holy, we can actually probably- You can try with our yes. Well, I'm a, I'm a respectful person. <laughs> I'm pretty much like, oh, you know, you know holy, holy moly, we can actually, um, we can actually uh, solve a lot of the legal issues that the, that the DAO had. Um, and we also saw that there's a lot of innovation on the smart contract side, and by marrying marry those two uh, developments together, uh, we realized that we could resurrect this, this great idea, this great experiment, and hopefully a way that complies with US law. Is that an easy organization to replicate? It, it, it seems like um, anything that's handling investor funds and allocating capital with any expectation of return, that seems loaded in and of itself. Wouldn't it be easier to start with a basic nonprofit? 
So we've already seen the gains of nonprofit start. That's in Portugal, we were encouraged by this idea. Mm -hmm. So there's a project we need to do in the space called MALA, which is pretty much, it's not a not-for-profit legally, but it pretty much is a grant-giving organization. Functions. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's raised a little over a million dollars in ether, and it's allocated out portions of that ether uh, to various different projects that are supporting the Ethereum ecosystem. Super mm -hmm. cool project. It's got a lot of uh, prominent uh, backers, including uh, Vitalik and Joe Lubin and some other folks. Um, and in many ways, that experiment, the mechanics of it, the way the smart contracts work, they translate really well into this venture model too. Mm -hmm. So we use that as a baseline on the smart contract side and extended it uh, so we can start to do more for-profit ventures. So in many ways, we've kind of we've already gone past the era where we, we're going to need to kind of just experiment with this for not-for-profits. Mm -hmm. And using open law, we're able to start taking it kind of to the next level. Are individual investors still restricted uh, by accredited investor laws and, and, and you know, what you'd expect from U.S. Uh, regulations around uh, like investor protections? And, sure. And, and how do you encode that? Do you have to work with like a third party to do KYC and, and, and accreditation or, or, or is that just self-attestation? So let's maybe we'll take a step back and kind of talk about the issues with the DAO itself. Mm -hmm. and it can make a, a lot of sense. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. The best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. Was your question about Malik then? Malik does not do credit. Uh, no, no, no. Malik is just a grant-making entity. So I understand like this, the same you know, functionality. Yeah. Obviously, you need to be able to do that if, if you're making investments. But um, but it's more about how do you accept money on the way in? Sure. So for a legal yeah, it's an entity. Like it's this. a great question. Yeah. And so the DAO, the DAO itself, the original version, um, not only did it have these securities issues, but at, um, the SEC basically weighed in on whether or not it led into legal problems. And this mm -hmm. kind of kicked off a lot of the legal issues that many token-based projects have been grappling with over the past couple of years. Uh, the SEC issued a, what's known as a 21A report. Mm -hmm. uh, and that 21A report pretty much uh, made clear that in the SEC's view, uh, any interest in an entity that looks like the DAO would be considered a security mm -hmm. uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, and what that means is if it's a security in the U.S. that only folks that are credit investors, uh, which is a real fancy legal term to effectively mean a rich person. To screw retail investors. Yeah. Well, that's fair too. And another issue, um, you, know, you would have to be a, you know, a pretty much a wealthy individual or an entity with a sufficient number of assets to participate mm -hmm. in those transactions. 
um, and, um, and so that means for the allow itself, as an initial starting point, we're going to limit it to accredited investors. We think that there's some decent arguments that can be made to open mm -hmm. this up to non-accredited investors, um, and I think over time we like to evolve to that. But, uh, our initial principle is we want to do this right, we want to do this in a way that we can experiment with some of these mechanics on the smart contract side and make sure that works before we kind of take it to that next step. Uh, a lot like what we saw exchanges do, where they were mm -hmm. like, listen, we're only going to list Bitcoin first, but over the course of years, we've been able to expand what, they, what they've listed, and they've been able to kind of bring this idea of digital asset trading to, to the masses. This is a framework, right? So is there an initial implementation of the Lao? Yes. Uh, what, what types of entities do you think will get spun up, and, and who will be the creators of, of them, right? Because just because this primitive exists, it doesn't mean that people are just going to dump capital into it Absolutely. and put it on autopilot because it still needs to be configured and you still have to set the investment parameters in general, uh, investment thesis. Like who, how, how do you go from this primitive to creating an autonomous entity with rules that somehow does not look as if it's being controlled by one person or organizing body that is forking the code and then at least putting forth an initial proposal for, yeah. for, for how capital should be allocated. Well, maybe let me unpack how the LAO uh, is, is going to work off of that, and then I can describe. What and and, and, and let's yeah, things. let's let's separate like the LAO primitive from sure. I don't know what. what let's let's call it the WOW, like the the right the right autonomous organization. Yeah. Right. So like whoever forks the code first. So so uh, separating. VLAO is a concept from the first implementation. Yes, so let's talk about the first implementation. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first implementation that we're going to help facilitate, um, and we being OpenLaw, um, it's going to be modeled very closely to a traditional venture capital fund. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means is, is that there's going to be legal documentation in place um, so that if you're an investor uh, in, this, in the lab, it should give you some comfort that this is done in a manner that you're familiar with. Um, members of the LAO will receive an, uh, an interest, an ownership interest in, in the entity, and that ownership interest will enable them uh, to collectively vote and decide which funds to project, uh, which funds to, um, which projects to fund. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's the, the basic concept. This is kind of what we saw with uh, Malik panel. A bunch of different folks contributed capital to it, and they voted uh, collaboratively to decide where the funding goes. We're going to have that same concept mm -hmm. wrapped up in. Uh, limited liability entities that are organized in, in Delaware and other jurisdictions so that people can contribute capital. Uh, they can receive ownership interest in the, in the entity. Mm -hmm. uh, they can decide on which projects to fund. And in return, they're going to get back a interest in the projects. And that interest is not going to be just a generic token. It's actually going to be a tokenized stock. Uh, and we at Open Law are going to help facilitate that process in both ends of the equation, both the creation of the legal entity uh, as, long with, as well as the creation of tokenized stock for projects. Uh, and by doing that, uh, we think that we can uh, begin to streamline dramatically the venture process to uh, The lab itself is going to start not investing every project. We're going to start mm -hmm. at, the, at pretty much the seed stage. Uh, so we're going to try to fund companies that are uh, early stage, or the lab is going to try to fund companies that are early stage. Um, and the terms of the investment are going to be provided on a take it or leave it basis. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you want to accept investment from the lab, 
uh, you're going to do that uh, pursuant to standard terms and conditions. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be negotiating. Um, there's going to be certain requirements that you're going to need to hit uh, in order to, to receive it. But at the end of the day, with the standardization, we think that we can drop the time it takes for uh, members of the lab to come and reach a decision as to whether or not they want to fund a project, and also delivering capital uh, to projects that are needed there. How does the governance process work uh, for this first lab? Because in, in Moloch, you have concepts like uh, you go to rage quit. Right? So, so if you so if you disagree um, with the direction of, of the grant making body, you can just pull your, your funding. Yeah. Obviously, venture funds are not structured like that. So the lab will be structured like that. Okay. Uh, so we think that that's an important innovation. Mm -hmm. it, it enables folks to reach a collective decision making. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you disagree with it, you should be able to walk away with the capital. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll be able to replicate that um, in the in allow off the bat. But to your point, in future versions of this, that may evolve. But maybe that's not an effective way for, for these funds to operate, but we want to experiment with that off the bat. Mm -hmm. uh, so we should have wage quitting uh, that's available um, and other kind of minority rights uh, baked into the smart contracts uh, such that um, if there's a, a large holder uh, in the lab, uh, that it doesn't disproportionately influence the rest of the decision-making process. If this goes as crazy as the first down, right, right out of the gates, you might say that's a good problem to have. I, I don't know if it is, because um, with the ETH 2.0 fork coming up, you've got all types of risks about uh, where where the assets actually held. Um, you can't double spend uh, anything that's been committed to the lab. And if there's any issue whatsoever with forking, whether it's around the 2.0 launch or, or in the future, uh, and this is a similar problem, I think, with stable coins, how do you, um, how do you reconcile the differences? That, and, and, and how do you think about um, picking one chain versus another? Is that kind of incorporated into the governance, or is this just something that we're going to have to play by ear and figure well, out how it comes along? I mean, I think everybody's playing by ear to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. Do this uh, network upgrade. But the one thing that I will say, the way it's going to be structured is that OpenLaw will sit as an administrator. So if the members uh, basically direct us to do something, then we can uh, begin to upgrade the underlying smart contracts or take certain steps to remediate those issues. And we think that that's the right answer here for mm -hmm. rolling out DAOs more broadly. On the security side for the DAO itself, it ran into issues in part because it was so decentralized. Uh, so what we're going to be doing is basically providing a certain administrative services and where we can interject if the members basically vote and tell us that we're committed uh, to do that. I'm assuming you're not getting a carry on this. So we are not getting a carry. Um, you can view us as software, right? And mm -hmm. so for the software, we'll be taking a fee um, um, you know, that's going to deprecate over time. Uh, that's so it, it looks more like, like an ETF structure than a an actively managed fund so in terms of the fee structure and so I don't, and, I don't think ETF would be the right way to think about it um, it's really just a member managed <clears throat> venture capital fund that's relying on us as software to administer certain tasks and to help the members set, set it up off of that mm -hmm. uh, but the thing that's interesting and this is kind of what we're pointing towards uh, there's certain restrictions on the size in which the allow can be off of that 
uh, we'll, we're going to abide by those restrictions. So not everybody will be able to participate in in the first version of the lab. We'll be mm -hmm. limited in all likelihood to under 100 uh, initial uh, investors. But the model itself and the tools we've developed, we should be able to quickly spin up multiple uh, labs. Right? So you can imagine that this works in the future, having a constellation of labs that are all available for folks to receive funding for, as uh, funding from. Um, another thing that's interesting about what we're doing, um, we're helping 10 founding members basically set up the first lab, uh, but we should be able, and we're still dotting I's and crossing T's on this, uh, to do a public sale for the remaining 90 slots in the lab. Uh, so, what, what are your expectations around quorum and decision making when it comes to actually allocating the funding, uh, the, the investment capital? Yeah, so and, and do the more active members get some type of outsized performance failure? Can you just have all kinds of dead weight in one person calling shots if people are lazy? Yeah, so I mean, listen, this, we've seen this even with Molly itself. Mm -hmm. uh, participation in these entities is difficult. Uh, to predict, and it's oftentimes lower than what people initially expect. Um, so off of that, uh, we're going to require, just like in my life, a majority of the, of the holders of the interest in the lab uh, to approve an investment before uh, it occurs. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's what's going to be kind of uh, it's it's going to be set up to do. Uh, but over time, we can experiment with that. Uh, we can experiment with delegation, so folks can begin to delegate their votes to more active members. Um, even the, um, the right to vote could be tied to separate agreements that enable folks to earn uh, profit off of this. Right? So you can imagine different scenarios where folks that are more active can get compensated more, third parties could potentially um, potentially provide advice on what, on what to do and receive payment or a portion of whatever profit's made. Um, lots of different things can be explored. I don't know if that all makes sense for me. Legally, those are things we have to be very careful about, but we at least have a playground to begin to experiment with these ideas. And that's kind of the whole point, right? We want a place where we can explore using smart contracts mm -hmm. to manage some of the internal uh, affairs of organizations. We want it to be for-profit, not just grant-giving or, or you know, people giving away money at a loss. Uh, if we really want to push this forward, and I think at the same time, we want projects to actually have a reason to have a security token, and that's something that's going to be important here too. So for mm -hmm. a project, you're going to set up digitally native, and we're going to help you help you do that, provide you tools to do that. So that means from the beginning, we can have plenty of wonderful projects in the Ethereum ecosystem and hopefully other ecosystems that have tokenized stock from day one. Uh, and we think that that's important uh, as the ecosystem matures. It gives people an actual reason to use security tokens, and not just a kind of forced one. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing other. You know, <laughs> just a tremendous amount of, uh, of things for for the structure in particular. Uh, I mean, I think that there's a number of details that have to be worked through, but we've spoken to a number of different folks about this, uh, both on the both on the investor side, on the project side, and also uh, on the uh, law firm side. And, and I think that I think that this is something that uh, we should be able to launch. We're excited to launch, and we think it's really. Uh, a nice way to kind of capture that energy of what was available with the, uh, the DAO itself, but to do so in the right way. And I think if we could do this, all of those uh, fantastic projects in the space, uh, hopefully the good ones can receive funding really fast, and they can be set up on Ethereum basically from day one, and we can begin to start uh, really powering this ecosystem forward at an even faster clip. And so if you have a great project, 
you know which are the source of funding to receive funding from without having the need to go convince a venture capitalist uh, you know, say it's Silicon Valley uh, or New York or some other you know, major urban center. And we saw this with Bitcoin. I mean, you remember this. Like, there were so many great Bitcoin projects in 2011, 2012, 2013. They couldn't get funded. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, everybody knew in the space that it was going to be a big, a big deal. And you could say the same thing about early projects too. So I think it's really great if we can begin to you know, pull these assets uh, and begin to reward people for doing great work on these protocols. Well, it'll be fascinating to see how it unfolds. Uh, when is the when is the first close or, or targeted fund? Uh, so we haven't set those dates yet. Uh, I'll make sure to keep you apprised of that. But it's moving very fast. Um, both at the technical side, we're largely done with what's needed to operate this. Um, and then dotting lines and crossing T's, and hopefully we can get some announcements related to that uh, shortly. At DEF CON, where everybody's going to be making announcements. Target closed, you heard it here first. So, <laughs> all right, Aaron, uh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in and, and uh, chatting a little bit more about this. It's, uh, it's a fascinating concept if it works, um, even in a very basic form. I think it's a, a very promising framework. So, if it works, it inverts the ICO market. It, it does, and, and that alone would be exciting. There's so many kind of secondary, tertiary uh, benefits to something like this that you can think about um, uh, almost a prediction market of sorts for what true private market valuations are at scale, right? If you unpack some of the components, um, ultimately, as this uh, gets easier for non-accredited investors to participate, um, it, it you know removes that structural disadvantage that retail investors have in getting access to early opportunities, potentially. And the funds themselves have tokenized assets. Yeah. The stuff that we've seen before, you're trying to begin to value those, uh, those interests, you can begin to explore what we can do there. That's what we can, what, what we can do there too. Where can people learn more? Uh, they can go uh, to uh, the uh, the lao.io, uh, L-A-O, mm-hmm. um, or they can check out our uh, uh, OpenLaws Twitter feed, the Lao officials Twitter feed, or they can shoot us, shoot me out. Excellent. Aaron, thanks again. Thanks, Aaron. We'll be in touch soon. And until next time, thank you everyone for joining in. We'll see you tomorrow for another epic interview as I'm getting back on track with all of these uh, episodes and uh, releasing them on iTunes and Spotify with Rockwood Street folks. Until next time, peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.